that you would be present among us, that we would take serious your word that is given to us. May your Holy Spirit come and convict and consecrate our hearts for your good work and for your service. May the words spoken honor you, and may we be able to hear words like this that are difficult words that maybe we hesitate to say thanks be to God. May we be able to hear them and sit and place ourselves beneath them and ask ourselves what that means for us today in this space and in our lives and our relationships and what we go and do tomorrow and Tuesday and the day after day, God. We just ask yeah, that you'd make yourself uh, plainly clear to us this morning uh, and near. And may we feel the joy of uh, what it means to, to receive this life that you have offered to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is our second Sunday in a row in Mark. And last week when Kyle was in Mark, he did a really good job of uh, helping us see or kind of understand or, or enter into Mark's brevity, if you will. 16 chapters, very short and oftentimes Mark does leave us with things where you're like, That's, aren't you supposed to say more? Like, isn't there something else you would intend to tell us along the way here, Mark? Like, it's like kind of lacking some details. And if you juxtapose Mark versus Matthew and Luke especially, that kind of uh, can get a little bit longer, more detailed, and we're grateful for that. You're like, I, I feel like that there is something here that you're, you're forgetting to tell us, like th that you left out. And I think oftentimes... As teachers, preachers, pastors, we're tempted to add in the details. We've got Matthew and Luke, so it's like, hey, let's, let's add some things in there. And I think what we do when we do that, myself included, and, and I'm, I'm bad at this in a lot of things in life, is that we try to over-explain, and, and we shift, and we move up to here, and we make everything analytical and, and explanatory, and we miss what Mark's actually inviting us to do, which is to enter into this story and to sit with it. And to kind of wrestle with it and to, and to see that this kind of, hey, Mark, where's the details, is the way that the disciples probably felt at times. Like, hey, Jesus, where are the details here? You're saying a lot of things, but like, I, I don't know if I fully understand. In fact, so much so that Mark's entire narrative of the gospel, his 16 chapters, is kind of presented in this arc. One of the primary themes throughout Mark, and he does this really, really beautifully, if you haven't spent a lot of time in Mark, it is short, but you, and so you can see it pretty quickly because it's, it's you know, truncated in a lot of ways. You can see that he's constantly playing with this idea that the disciples are struggling to kind of grasp or fully understand what Jesus is saying. Like they get part of it, but it's like they're missing some of the details. They're like they're, they're getting in on it, but then they're kind of going like, what, like wait, what, um, I'm not sure exactly how you want us to respond here. And uh, thanks be to God for Peter that he responds for all of us, and then he's wrong most of the time, and then so we get an understanding of uh, how we are supposed to then respond. And so, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like teachers back in the day. They'd say, if you've got a question, somebody else probably has that question. And so go ahead and raise your hand and ask it because it helps everybody else in the room out. No bad questions, you know, no stupid questions, just stupid people is what I was told one time. I was like, that's kind of harsh, but I get what you're saying. Like, it's helpful. We, get, we, can, we can gather around this idea. And so we can learn and grow and develop. And you kind of get that with Peter. You're like, my man, seriously. Like, you just can't. Like, he's always kind of rushing in there, asking, doing the thing. And he's saying things. And Jesus is kindly always sort of correcting. But I'm grateful for Peter. One, because I identify a lot with him. I feel like I'm constantly doing these things. And two, because he helps us see things and understand things and his eagerness and his excitement to follow the Lord. He's right one minute and wrong the next. 
And all four Gospels will uh, like all concur together that Peter is like the disciple of the disciples. And so I'm very encouraged by that as well, that there's this guy that can constantly be right and wrong all the time. And Jesus goes, yes, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Someone willing to put themselves out there to try to, to, to jump to it. And I'll correct, and I'll guide, and I'll lead, and we'll go along the way. So Mark's doing this with his disciple, or with the, the narrative of the disciples in Mark's gospel. His disciples, they're always kind of struggling to see fully what Jesus is up to. And I think that in some ways, when we read these texts and these stories, when we put ourselves in it, we too should kind of feel that same tension of like, I feel that way. Like, I'm not always sure what Jesus is up to in life. I'm not always sure exactly what he's trying to do. And Mark is providing a way for us to go like, that's a normal response for the people of God. The people closest to Jesus had this sense of like, ah, I know who you say you are. But my understanding of who you say you are doesn't always line up with exactly who you say you are and your understanding of who you say you are, but I believe in it and I'm committed to it, and yet I don't always know exactly how to respond, how to, how to do this thing, and every time I think I get it, you're correcting, but gently and lovely, like in a very kind, gracious way. And I think Mark is asking us as the people of God to go like, this is normal. So if you find yourself in a Lenten season, and you're doubting, and you're wondering, and you're kind of going like, I, I know I believe in Jesus, but maybe my understanding of what the Messiah is, and who he's supposed to be, and what my response is supposed to be is, is all off. Maybe it's like, I, I don't know, like, just messed up. Maybe the, the things that I'd held on to as a kid, and that I was taught were good intentioned and loving and caring, and yet now that I've kind of been in life and experienced more, I go, oh, like there, there's something else to this. And instead of in that moment going like, maybe Jesus isn't worth it, in that moment going, maybe it was all a lie, in that moment maybe going, well, I'll just give myself over to cynicism and jadedness and, and just call the whole thing a wash and just be like, well, see, like none of it was ever really worth it anyways. It was all wrong, and so nothing can be trusted or lived or participated in so i'll just throw it out maybe instead of doing that you go oh this is normal for the people of god not only normal but it seems to be really good it seems to be the place that god oftentimes wants his people to find themselves in asking and wondering if maybe their understanding wasn't always whole and complete because we finite beings are going to have a very difficult time imagining and understanding what it is like for an infinite eternal being that is God, not human, to come and to dwell among human people and to ask us something of our lives, and to be near to us. The Old Testament people of God, Israel, Israelites, the Jews, they had a very hard time with this because their concept and understanding that a God would come and be near to them and love them and care to them and be personable to them was difficult for them to grasp. And Mark wants us to see this. So Mark's laying this out. And so there's kind of two ways you can see Mark. You can see it in three acts or two parts, your choice. If you see it in two parts, what you see in the first half of Mark is this way in which Mark is kind of naming who Jesus is. And we get that right up at the start of chapter 8, right before our passage. Peter, blessed Peter, is actually the one that declares it. Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? Elijah, prophets, this, that, and the other. And he says, but who do you say that I am? Jesus says, you're the, or Peter says, you're the Messiah, Son of God. Now, Peter has some things attached to that that he's going to immediately misunderstand and miss here, but Jesus is like, good, 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 this is good, let's keep going. 
Now, Mark does this thing that's really cool. Right after Peter announces this, he does this thing where he gives a story of Jesus healing a blind man. If you've ever read the story, it's a really weird one because he heals the blind man in partial stages. And you're like, wait, aren't you the son of God, the Messiah? Aren't you the one that's supposed to be able to just like, and it's done, you speak it. You spoke trees and life and the world and stars and moons into existence. I'm pretty sure you can speak someone's healing into existence in one run. And yet Mark says there's this moment where Jesus looks at a blind man, he partially heals him, he says, look around, he says, I see people, they look like trees. And he does some weird things that feel kind of odd to us. Spit, mud, saliva involved, and he touches his eyes again, he says, look again. Oh, okay, yeah, now we're here. I see people. And then Mark immediately is going to give us a story of the disciples that partially see what Jesus is, pre, and then they're going to see that, Jesus partial, that the disciples partially don't get it. And what Mark is inviting us into is that understanding who Jesus is and how to see is a process. Other than one boy that is demon-possessed, all miracles like in the story and the narrative of Jesus drop out of the narrative in Mark in this little section that we're in, starting in 8, except for the healing of blind people. Mark does this thing where there's this pattern where he will talk about the disciples starting to understand something. Jesus heals some blind people, and they get it, and they see and then he shows how the disciples don't quite get it fully yet. They don't see. He wants you to see how the disciples struggle. They are committed. They are faithful. They are all in. And yet they have a hard time understanding. This should be comforting to us and yet also kind of frustrating. Because if they can't get it, who can, right? So this is his pattern. And so in the first half, it's all about who Jesus is. And we kind of climax that who Jesus is at the beginning of eight with Peter, Mark 8 with Peter saying, You are the Son of Man. The next eight chapters for Mark, then, is how he is the Son of Man. We get who he is and how he is who he is. And this is the part where the disciples are going to get really confused. If you want to go with three acts instead of two parts, what you get in the first is they're all in Galilee, kind of there around, kind of local. You're getting the disciples. Everybody's kind of getting to know each other. This is meet and greet, kind of understanding the, the team philosophy, if you will. They're practicing, and now they're ready to go. In the next little section that we're starting now is they're going to be on their way. Is this language that Mark's going to want to use. On the way, on the way, on the way, on the way. On the way to where? On the way to Jerusalem. What's Jerusalem? Jesus' death. And it's this journey. It's this journey idea that it doesn't just happen in a moment. It doesn't just happen in an instant. But there's this process and this journey that they kind of go on the way. And even for Jesus, his life was never meant to just like, he couldn't just come down and it all happen in an instant. It was meant to be played out in the ways that it was meant to be played out. And choices were meant to be made and understanding was meant to be had. And it can't just happen in an instant. Everywhere in scripture we get this idea and this understanding that this is the way it was for the disciples. And we long for it to happen in an instant. We long for it to happen in a moment. But we know that's not the way relationships work. It's not the way love works. It's not the way anything good works. So we should relate to this, be comfortable with this. And yet we, I think increasing, all human nature has probably always been this way. I don't want to speak, you know, for people that existed thousands and thousands of years ago. But it seems that, you know, at least 2,000 years ago, Mark was aware that people wanted things to happen really fast and instantaneously, and it didn't. We have not been helped in the 21st century by technology I rail on this pretty much every time I preach. 
we'll leave it there. It, it just hasn't, it hasn't improved at all. But we want things instantly. We want understanding. We want knowledge. And oftentimes what we are ignoring is being and existing and feeling we take ourselves out of our bodies, out of our experience, out of the present, out of the moment, because we're just so desperate to like, get to the other thing. And Mark is saying, this is natural. But Jesus wants you to be here now, present, and that there's a thing where you have to go on the journey. You have to go on the way. And in some ways, our life is always on the way. And on the way, Jesus is always revealing himself. And the disciples get it right, and they get it wrong. And he teaches, and he corrects, and he guides, and they get it right, and they get it wrong, and he teaches, and he corrects, and he guides. And there's this juxtaposition, always, of Jesus being seen by the, the, not the right kind of people. The people that are supposed to really get Jesus are the ones that oftentimes are missing it. And the people that are outsiders, that, are, that shouldn't really be the ones with the knowledge and the information, they're the ones that are oftentimes gaining the understanding. And so Mark wants us to see this. And so our passage is, is the very start of this. They're kind of done with Galilee. They're ready to go. And they're moving on the way to Jerusalem. And so he's announcing what this means. Hey, this is where we're going. And immediately the disciples have a really hard time with it. And they're like, well, I don't know how I feel about this. And so, because what he announces is his future suffering. Peter, you've said I'm the son of man. I am the Messiah. Any of you that have been raised in the church and have been around uh, understandings of the Old Testament would know without much prodding or understanding that the Messiah was the one that was going to come and to rule and to reign in a very physical kind of way. They were going to overthrow Rome, Jerusalem, Israel was going to be reestablished, they were going to become a nation state again. And so when they announced that Jesus is the Messiah, all of them would have been in some sense thinking like that before Jesus dies. The Jerusalem, the people of God, Israel will be free. They will be free to do the things that they want to do. They will no longer be confined by their oppressors and by the people in charge. And they will become the nation that they were always meant to be. And that doesn't happen. And so Jesus announces he's going to be the Messiah. Or Peter announces it. And he says, okay, good, you got it. Now let me tell you how that looks. Let me tell you how that's going to go down. That I am now the Messiah. It's different than what you think. Peter, so distraught by this, corrects Jesus. No way. You can't die. Not going to happen. I would, I would imagine Peter that would have been thinking in the ways that uh, if you've seen good war movies or whatever, like, it's like, no, 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 no. You're the leader. Like, we die for you. We keep you alive at all costs. If you've seen The Chosen uh, in the early seasons, they do a really good job of, like, planting this idea. Like, Peter's always like, we got to protect him. We got to protect him. We got to protect him. Like, we got to keep him safe. Because that's the way it would have been. Like, if, if you got them, like, you got to get him out the back door. We can die. We can be hurt. We can be marked. But he, like, he's got to stay safe. He's the Messiah. So he says, like, hey, very practically, this isn't like a, a miss in a, a theology or philosophy. Very practically, Peter's like, no, no, no. You don't have a movement if you die. We believe you're the Messiah. The Messiah is a movement. The Messiah is, a, is an idea and a person for them. Like it is this thing that's supposed to happen. And it all ends if you die. And then Jesus says probably one of the harshest things he says in all of the Gospels. At least I would feel that way if I was Peter. And he looks at him and he says, get behind me. Accuser would maybe be a better word. But if you're a Hebrew person, you would know that that means the Satan. It's a Hebrew way of saying it. Satan. 
It might be better if you would read that with a lowercase tns instead of an uppercase s. Some translations do it differently. But it's saying that there's this way in which what Peter is getting at is this thing that is embodied by the accuser, the evil one. And Peter's the representation of it. And so is he calling Peter that directly, or is he kind of speaking past Peter and what Peter is, you know, what Peter's trying to say? I'm here to say if you're Peter, it doesn't matter, right? Like, because he said it when you said it, and you're like, well, that sucks. So we can probably, you know, split hairs on that. But I I would imagine Peter felt it one way and one way only. But it could be more. But that's why he says, you're thinking in human ways, like the accuser does. The accuser, if you go back to the wilderness, the Lenten season, where we start, when Jesus enters into the wilderness, and the accuser, the Satan, Satan, comes and tempts him. He tempts him in very practical ways with the things that Jesus himself knows he's come to pursue. But he does it by offering it power, success, glory, and human understanding outside of God's plan and divine acts. Same thing's happening here. Peter's saying, like, yeah, 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 you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, good. This is what the Messiah does. And Peter's like, nope. And Jesus, in that moment, he's like, that, this, is, this is the garden all over again, okay? Peter, when, when you hear that word, the Satan, Satan, get behind me, accuser, garden image. Genesis 3, all over again. There is this thing, this way in which humanity is meant to go and function and operate. And there's this beautiful thing here with Jesus that I just like, it gives me goosebumps to think about it. Because what is happening here in the wilderness, now with Peter, and will happen repeatedly with Jesus, Jesus is standing in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil again and again on our behalf. And unlike our father and our mother, what he is capable of doing, what he is able to do is he is able to choose the knowledge of, in the way that God intends it to be, and to resist the accuser's offer. Because I think Jesus would know in the back of his mind, Peter's right. There would be a whole lot more here. It would happen a lot faster, a lot easier if I did the thing that I know I was capable of doing, which is just keep doing these miracles, work my way to Jerusalem, shame some Pharisees with my uh, rhetorical skills, which I'm sure he probably had really good ones. It was, you know, existing from eternity, past, present, and future. So, like, he's got a few weapons in his uh, mental arsenal there. And so I think there's a way in which he knows he could do this. It would be easier. It would be faster. It would be impactful. People would get it a lot quicker. And that's the whole point, right? I, th- I think there's a way in which he himself in that moment would have been like, you're right, Peter, that would probably be a better way of doing things in one sense, in a human sense. And, and what, the reason I want to take moments to like kind of sit in this and, and pull this tension out is because when we hear the Satan or get behind me Satan and we hear some of this language, we're so far removed from this story that it's really easy for us to like almost villainize Peter. Maybe we don't villainize him because we got a soft spot for him, but just be like, that was really wrong. You were really wrong, obviously. But I want you to see all the ways in which Peter would have been really right for everyone else in the story. Peter said the thing that everyone else wanted him to say. I will dare say Peter said the right thing in the moment. 
Peter said the thing that everybody else would have been thinking and hoping theologically, philosophically, morally, ethically, all of it, like whatever you want to go down. Like Peter's right here in that moment, in that space, with their understanding, and Jesus corrects him. And we need to see that and understand that because I think that we get tempted in our lives to, to put these things in moral, ethical, right, wrong categories, and it's really easy to kind of look back into the Bible and go, well, obviously they were wrong, right, to you 2,000 years later with the whole story. But what the Bible is begging of you, what Mark is begging of you, is to put yourself into the story and to ask of yourself, what are all of the ways that you are confidently right and terribly wrong all along the way? What are all the ways that you got a little snippet of who Jesus is, of the direction you're going, and then you just kind of miss the whole second half? For whatever reason, some people rush, some people pull back. Some people are scared, some people are overzealous. Some people are excited, some people are just kind of like neutral to it all. But there's a way in which we, we miss who Jesus really wants to be in our lives. Because we give over to that temptation to give ourselves to the wisdom and the knowledge that the accuser offers. Did God really say? Is that really the way? Again and again, what's being offered, what seems to be being offered, is God's call to us to come and to die, as Bonhoeffer would say. And the accuser coming along and saying, just like he did in Genesis 3, just like he did to Jesus in the wilderness, and just like he is to Jesus in this moment, you don't really have to die. You don't really have to give up. All that power, that freedom, out from under the oppressors, that's what you want. You're after that. You're after true freedom. And he's moving it. And he's saying, this is the way to life. And now, we're not the Messiah in the garden being attempted by Satan. Nor are we, you know, the one starting a movement in uh, first century Jerusalem or Israel. But we are constantly set in front of that tree and asked if we want to go the way that God has called us to, or do we want to go the way of our own knowledge of what is good and right, what is evil, what is not evil, what is wise and what is not wise. And I want to you to hear this. I think that there is a way, there is a danger by which we as Christians can think that the Christian life is obvious, simple, direct, straightforward, and in many ways it is. Follow Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do these things, and, and you've understood all the law and the commandment. Really, really complex to do, right? Because we're caught up into this. And I think there's a way in which we can begin to think like, well, like, it's all about ethics and morality and being a good person and being a good citizen and doing the right thing. And then when people correct us, we get really defensive because we're like, I'm a good boy. Like, don't you think I'm smart? Like, don't you think I'm a good person? Don't you think I'm intelligent? Like, don't you think I saw that? Maybe you guys are, I'm, I, that's what I think every time somebody tries to correct me. I'm like, don't you think I thought about that? Like, come on. I think a lot. That's what I do, okay? Like, I've obviously thought about that. Don't you understand me? Don't you know who I am? Like all these things. And so there's a way in which that Jesus is doing this with his disciples, asking them this. And they want to push back. Because what I want you to see is that the way and the ethic of the kingdom is not always what is kind of maybe what we would call 
the way that makes the most sense, the most wise. Oftentimes we can look at things and go like, well, that, like morally, ethically, uh, like common sense wise, like that just makes sense. What's wrong with that? Why are we bothered by that? Like this is this is a good way, or even more so, we go like it just like that's just right. It feels right. It feels good, and and we want to start to trade the life that God intends for us for the life that we think we should have. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, "Listen, come, come close." And he calls in the people outside. So this always makes me feel bad for Peter that that means that like the, this whole correction didn't happen quietly, like in a back corner. It happened in front of enough people that Jesus can then immediately turn and go, okay, now everybody come in here. And Peter's got to be going like, oh, no. Like he's about to, you know, but he does it. He comes, he says, listen, this is the way of the kingdom. If you want to lose your life, you'll gain it. But if you, if you want to try to hold and grasp for straws, then you're going to lose what you really should become. You have to let go of and lose your life to find something more. Some translations say soul. It's a good translation. The problem with that is, is we have some really like kind of like weird ideas with soul and think like, oh, well, yeah, like I, I, I sacrifice all this stuff now, and that means then like I've got this like insurance card for when I die, and my soul will be ferried across some unknown land, and I'll exist forever in a disembodied state maybe, or maybe I get some weird body that's heavenly. I don't know. But what Jesus is after here what the Bible is after is saying there is a way to live with finite thinking and finite understanding and pursuing finite things. Maybe you want to call them like mortal or like, you know, this life. But there's another way of thinking. There's another way of existing that is infinite, that is eternal, that is abundant, that is the good life that Jesus is pushing us towards, that the Gospels are pushing us towards. And the invitation is, is if you're willing to let go of pursuing the finite life, the one that, is, that makes sense, the one that oftentimes very much so is not necessarily all that wrong, it's not unintelligent, it's really subtle and kind of quiet, and we make all these decisions that we kind of go like, this is the way we're going to move forward through this life. And it's kind of simple, and it's logical, and it's practical, and it just unfolds before you, and you just kind of go, yeah, that's the way to go. And he's saying, if you want to pursue that, you can. And, and it's not that, like, you're a terrible human being, or all is wrong, or, like, that you're some reprobate, like, horrible, evil sinner. It's that you're sacrificing the thing that God longs for you to have, which is this deep, true, abundant life here and now that will then carry on and continue for eternity. He's inviting you into the infinite the abundant, where you don't have to worry about resources in the same kind of way. And I don't just mean money and cars and food, but things like emotional equity and love. I remember a parent telling me this. They're like, it's a weird experience. You will sit at some point once you've had one kid and you're about to have your second or your third or your fourth, however many you have, and you'll think to yourself, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough mental capacity. Like, how am I going to divide this pie up? And there's a way in which sacrificial love doesn't divide the pie up more. It makes the pie bigger because it's not a like, consumable resource. It is a thing that grows upon itself. This is what love does. Love's big enough. And every parent, every person in a relationship, everybody in a family understands this, that there's a way in which that love grows. 
and it doesn't get split up. It is for everyone. And so we no longer have to compete and claw and fight and strive when we start thinking about the resources and the ways in which we want to live. We no longer have to think, well, if they get that, then like I'm on the out. And now we can celebrate the person that's got the thing that we've been longing for for years and years. Now we can be really excited that they got to go do that thing that I've always wanted to do. And instead of being bitter and angry that somebody had advantages and resources, we can say, that's really great. And then we can also understand the advantages and the resources we have and go like, I didn't really do a whole lot to get these and that I should use these to help the people that don't have them. The resources aren't, you know, non-renewable in the economy of the gospel. They're abundant. They're infinite. Jesus promises that you'll have more than enough. He asks you to look at the birds in the air and the flowers in the field. And he says, do you think they store up in barns or worry about what they're going to wear the next day? And yet they're clothed in beauty that is far surpassing the greatest of kings. Because that's the economy of the gospel. There's abundance. There's infinite possibility and eternal access to past, present, and future as we sit in the now with Jesus and realize that it's pregnant with it all. And so this is what Jesus is inviting us to here in Mark 8, asking us to come and understand this. This is what Lent is inviting you into as you embody this, as you, as you begin to get into this story of the people of God. You're being invited in to embrace this idea that it doesn't always make sense. It's not always easy to make the, like that step towards Jesus, that you're asked to give something up. But, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever done this, You've learned something, and everybody says, oh, like, if you can learn to just, like, let go of it, then, like, you'll, my, I'll just say it, my current weird obsession is golf. I had it for a moment, and it came back to me later in life, and now I'm, like, all in, just, like, really obsessed, and I'm really bad. I'm not good at all. Like, it's just, it's a difficult thing for me. It's why I quit when I was younger, and I was, like, I'm going to come back to it. And I read all these things that are, like, if you can just, like, not think about it and do all these mental things, like, then you'll be like, you'll, you'll play more free and play better. Or if you've ever played any sport or done a musical instrument or all these things, if you don't overthink it, but what can you not do? You can't not overthink it to be better because you're thinking about being better in that moment, right? Like it's a catch 22. And this is what this is. It's like, it, there's this way in which Jesus is inviting you into this and going like, you have to, you have to be free of this. But like Abraham, or as Kierkegaard would call it, the leap of faith, you have to be willing to accept what is on the other side of that, and you can't guarantee that or control that. And yet so much of what we're doing, that Satan mentality, the accuser mentality, the approach is, we've got to control this. We've got to make sure that we know where this is going. We have to, I don't even want to say manipulate, because it sounds more negative. We've got, we've got to be able to like ensure that I've got the best path forward. Because that's what makes sense. It's logical. It's reasonable practical. I'm not talking about wild debauchery here. I'm talking about everyday life where you go like, I'm not willing to concede the fact that I'm a mortal being and going to die because I have no control over when that's going to happen. Silicon Valley's trying really, really hard to figure out how to reverse biological age and get you to live forever and ever. If you want to talk about living forever, go there. If you want to talk about dying and death, go to the Bible. Because what the Bible promises, what Lent promises, is that you are going to die. And you can do nothing to stop it. No matter how much money, how much effort, whatever it is, you have no control over when that is going to happen and how it's going to happen.
going to happen. You have to let go. You have to be okay with not being in control. Embracing mortality. Embracing chaos. Embracing difficulty and hardship. And knowing that you don't get to dictate those terms. The Japanese have this weird way of talking about art that I read in a, it's a, it's a book by James K. Smith, and he, and he talks about this idea in which that they say that in art, what you're able to do is when you're able to accept this like chaos and uncontrollableness, that it is not nihilism or just giving up on life or just saying, okay, well, if I can't control any of it, then I'll just quit trying, I'll quit doing anything, and I'll just like let go of it all and just kind of bob through life meaningless and aimless. But they talk about how that there's a real beauty in being able to accept that you're not in control. There's, there's a grace. There's a gift in being able to go like, I'm going to die. Life is temporal as we know it in this kind of way. And yet Jesus is offering something more in that moment. Lent's asking us to come and to die. And no matter where you're at, as a human being, what is natural is to resist the earth. Like there is a primordial instinct in you to resist death. Your brain will take over and will get you out of negative situations as fast as it can. It is what it is designed to do. Get this over with. Avoid it at all costs. Don't go there. Dying's bad. Pain is bad. And yet... Jesus is inviting you to come and to participate in it, to walk towards it willingly, wide-eyed, knowing what is happening. And he promises something that I think we have a difficult time understanding, which is that you are going to be given a gift, a life that is more abundant than you could want, dream, or imagine as you embrace the way of the cross. But this means denying ourselves of what we think we should have and need and what sometimes makes the most sense and what sometimes is the easiest or the most practical and we embrace instead the way of the kingdom, the way of Jesus. But we're given an infinite life. As the band comes up, this is what we celebrate when we move to the, the table. This death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate what it means that we're mortal beings. As we said on Ash Wednesday, from dust we have come and to dust we shall return. I think, like, when we start to grasp this, that, that just because things die, just because things end, just because things don't go the way that they were supposed to doesn't mean that they failed. I've used this analogy a couple times this week as I've, I've grasped a hold of it. Like, the leaves in autumn, late October, when they fall off the trees and they die and they wither, there's a good chance that that same leaf in that same spot, you know, is going to grow back. There's also a good chance that a winter storm is going to come and knock those limbs down and that leaf will never get to be where it was. It doesn't know that. But it didn't fail at being a leaf. It died. It fell off. It did what it was supposed to do. And we can see beauty in that. That's an easy one for us. We see beauty in the colors and in the fall. We can even see beauty in the barrenness of winter, right, as the sun sets behind, like, barren trees. And you go, that's beautiful. And it's death and it's seasons, and it's natural. As we can embrace these things and understand these things, we can begin to embrace this beautiful life that God has for us and begin to let go and be at ease and be present in the moment that we find ourselves in living the way that Jesus has called us to. But this requires something of a denial of what we want 
oftentimes in those spaces, in those moments. I, if the leaf could think, I'm sure there are moments where some of those leaves think, I don't want to let go yet. I don't want to fall off and be trampled on and become compost or stuck in a child's mouth, you know? Like, that sounds terrible. And yet, like, it does the thing. And we're being asked to do the thing and to find beauty in it, find season, rhythm, routine in it. It's what Lent's about. But that's hard. And so we come again and again, week after week, to remind ourselves that there's beauty in death, that there's gift in death, that there's gift in finiteness that we exist in as we're being offered to taste and experience infiniteness. There's beauty and gift and sacrifice. Even though everything inside of our body resists against it and pushes against it, there is grace in it. There's kindness in it. This is wisdom, to be able to deny what we think we need to have and want to have and accept for us what we should have and should pursue. And this is what Jesus is offering us in the ethic of the kingdom. So we learn to deny ourselves and shape our lives in such a way that we follow after Jesus and live the way that he lived, which is full of self-denial and death. And it feels really depressing, but I promise you, it is. And it's freeing at the same time. And it's beautiful at the same time. And those are competing ideas that we have a really hard time understanding. And that's because this lyric all week has been in my mind as I've been going through this. It's from Wild Sweet Orange, a band that's uh, from here in Birmingham that don't really exist anymore, but Preston Loving Goods, the artist, some of you may know him personally. But he says, belief, believe in me, because reason's never going to be enough to understand why love would come and die for me. And that's the invitation at Communion. It's to embrace belief, to embrace embrace faith, to make the leap, as Kierkegaard would say, to to embrace mortality and death and to somehow hold on to the fact that Jesus promises infinite life on the other side. And so we come, we take a piece of the bread and the cup, and we go back to our seats, we'll hold on to the elements. And as you do so, come in, in faith and in belief, even though it doesn't feel like you have it all figured out. You know exactly what's going to happen, but come and receive the elements and the gifts of God for the people of God to be sustained and persevered through this difficulty and to receive the infinite life of God that he has available for you now and for all of eternity. So as the band plays, come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.